Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today is a very special program. For the first time on the New Thinking Aloud channel, I am introducing a guest interviewer. I'm referring to Emmy Vadness. She is the author of Intuitive Development, How to Trust Your Inner Knowing for Guidance with Relationships, Health, and Spirituality. Emmy is also an occupational therapist. In addition, she's been a guest three times previously on New Thinking Aloud, and I am linking right now in the upper right-hand corner of your screen to the previous three videos with Emmy. You see, now that I've turned 75, now that I've been hosting the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube for almost seven years, now that I've won the grand prize of the Bigelow Institute essay competition regarding survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death, I'm thinking it's time for me to begin to take advantage of other opportunities that are opening up for me now and bringing in some new fresh blood into the New Thinking Aloud channel. Of course, I'll remain closely involved, but Emmy was really the first person I thought of who might be an appropriate new host for New Thinking Aloud interviews. She's based in St. Paul, Minnesota, and now I'll switch over to the internet video with Emmy, who will be interviewing me. Welcome, Emmy. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Jeff. Thank you so much for inviting me on your program in this very unique and uh, a big highlight of my life way. Well, you are going to interview me today, so I'm going to turn the floor or the screen as it is over to you. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome, everybody, to New Thinking Aloud. This is Emmy Vadness. My guest today is Jeffrey Mishlove, who is a parapsychologist and the host of New Thinking Aloud and the author of The Roots of Consciousness and The PK Man. He is the recipient of the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited university from the University of California, Berkeley in 1980. Between 1986 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Aloud public television series. He is also the grand prize winner of the 2021 Bigelow Institute essay competition regarding the best evidence for the survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Emmy. Well, congratulations again on winning the grand prize in the Bigelow Institute essay competition in 2021. And of course, there were other winners. There are 29 total winners, which I'd love to get a little feedback from you about them. But just to get us started, could you take us to the moment when you found out that you won first place? And what was that like for you personally to receive this award? Well, of course, it's one of the big honors of my entire life and, and one of the biggest thrills of my life as 
as well. One of my fellow parapsychologists, Professor Bernard Carr, described it as the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in parapsychology. So it was a big deal. So there were 29 winners of this essay competition. You respectfully and very admirably interviewed several of those when you were in Las Vegas receiving that award. And I've listened to the ones that you've published so far, and they're just fantastic. I encourage everyone to check them out for sure. Uh, In that, with all those wonderful people who have also won alongside you, what are some highlights that stand out to you from some of the other essays that you feel really round out this body of knowledge? Well, you know, I think there were 29 essays that won, and several of them had multiple authors. So maybe a total of 43 individuals were actually winners in the competition. But in addition to that, there were a total of 204 essays submitted. So I've actually interviewed a few people who didn't even receive honorable mention, and I've looked at their essays, and they're fabulous. One of them is going to be released. Well, by the time this video is up, viewers will have already seen the video with Marla Fries, who has previously been interviewed on New Thinking Aloud. In fact, a number of New Thinking Aloud guests who have been previously interviewed on this channel submitted wonderful essays and didn't necessarily receive even honorable mention, to be honest, some of the top people in the field. So the winning essays uh, were also wonderful. I'll give you one example is Vernon Neppy, who I've interviewed maybe a dozen times on, on this channel. And Vernon is a excellent chess player. I don't know if he would call himself a chess master. He's modest about that, but I think of him as a chess master. He was one of the top chess players in South Africa when he lived there, and he did an in-depth analysis of a very important case related to the survival of human consciousness. Uh, I've interviewed him about it, and if you don't mind, (laughs) I'll link to it right here. (laughs) It's called uh, The Chess Game from Beyond the Grave. It's, It's a wonderful case in which a medium in Europe, I think it was in Sweden, uh, was contacted by a researcher and he, who said, do you think you can reach out to any deceased chess masters who would be willing to play a game of chess with a living chess grandmaster? They ended up uh, getting the cooperation of Victor Korchnoi, who was like ranked number two in the world at that time. And they actually found a, a deceased player through the medium, a fellow who died in the early 1950s, Geza Maroxi, a Hungarian chess player. They played an entire game of chess, and Vernon analyzed that game in great detail. And in his essay, he actually provided statistical analysis of the probability that Maroxi could have played the game that he did against one of the greatest players the world has ever known, and and determined that the odds against chance of that happening were something like several billion to one. So I, I thought that was very impressive. In your essay, you mention 
several arrows, or as you put it, white crows that point to the continuation of consciousness in the afterlife. And if you don't mind, I'll just go ahead and list those because not everybody maybe at this point has read your essay and do read it because it's not only is it a fabulous essay at one first place, but also it links to many videos and it's a, it has a multimedia experience to it. So some of those, well, all nine of the uh, arrows that you mentioned are near-death experience, after-death communications, reincarnation, peak and Darian experiences, possession, instrumental trans communication, xenoglossy, mental mediumship, and physical mediumship. And when I look at that list, these also are aspects of parapsychology. Pretty much you could say that parapsychology really began in the late 19th century as an effort to see if it was possible to scientifically establish the survival of human consciousness after death. In those days, they used the term psychical research, and, and the Society for Psychical Research was formed in 1882. So we have at this point 140 years of study in, into that question, huge archives, an enormous amount of data to draw upon. And you highlight these as white crows in your essay. Uh, because William James, you mentioned on page eight of your essay, the father of American psychology noted that you only need to produce one white crow if you wish to disprove the hypothesis that all crows are black. That, that's correct. That's what William James said. And he also went on to say his own white crow was Mrs. Piper, a medium who he studied at great length. And he was convinced that Mrs. Piper was capable of producing what he called paranormal information, which meant not necessarily survival after death, but information that couldn't be accounted for by normal means. So it might have been telepathic. It might have been William James even speculated that maybe there are demonic entities on the other side who masquerade as our deceased loved ones. So maybe that was the source of the information coming through Mrs. Piper. But he knew it couldn't be explained by normal means whatsoever. And he argued about this in the pages of Science Magazine. In fact, he was terribly disappointed when the critics of uh, his defense of Mrs. Piper raised such flimsy arguments. Uh, and I quote William James saying, you know, mediums are like the outlaws of the scientific community. And, and he went on to say that any stick is good enough to beat a dog of that stripe with, meaning his, his critics uh, thought so little of the evidence that they didn't even bother to raise good arguments. So in at the beginning of your essay, and you've mentioned this in your monologues and in your interviews when you've been a guest with other uh, podcasters and so forth, that you share your dream of with uh, your Uncle Harry and how in that dream he came to you and you woke up and you describe it as the most moving well, I mean, you, you can share, but this is what I recall you saying, one of the most moving or most moving experiences of your life, where you woke up crying and laughing and singing a sacred spiritual song. So 
Yeah. So is that is is that right that that was a very powerful dream for you? As a matter of fact, I did do one of the in presence monologues about that many years uh, ago, and uh, uh, once again we can link to it on the upper right hand of of your screen. Where long before I ever knew about this essay competition, it was a turning point in my life, Emmy. Because if you had known me uh, in 1972 when I had that dream. I was a graduate student in criminology. I was doing volunteer work at San Quentin Prison, working in the psychotherapy unit, conducting group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists. And when I had that dream, it moved me to such an extent that I changed my major. I left criminology with a master's degree and took advantage of a very uh, obscure regulation that at the university that if you were a graduate student in good standing, which I was, and you can find three faculty members who will sponsor you in a field that no single department in the university is willing to sponsor, you can create your own field of study. So, so I did that. And I can look back now, nearly 50 years later, and, and say, yeah, that was a major turning point in my life. And, and one of the things I did in my essay to talk about the power of these afterlife communications is, is write about other people whose lives were changed in major ways. For example, Bishop James Pike, who was the Bishop of California of the Episcopal Church. He resigned this very important uh, post after he had had uh, communications with his deceased son through a medium. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is regarded by Time magazine as one of the hundred most influential people of the 20th century. Uh, for her work on death and dying, was about to give up all of that work in frustration. She felt it was going nowhere when she had a, a, an after-death communication. That's what they're called. And uh, with a, a woman who actually materialized, a deceased woman she knew who materialized in front of her and demanded that she not quit her work and that she continue doing it. So, these communications can be extraordinarily life-changing for people, and that that's something you can't really capture very easily using the scientific method, but it's uh, certainly been well-documented from a historical and biographical point of view. And I suppose it's also worth mentioning that the Bigelow essay was based on the criteria of not what would be the most acceptable data in a scientific journal, but how would you convince a jury in a courtroom? And so, uh, they wanted human testimony. They said, let's uh, rely. They encouraged the entrance in the competition to use human testimony. And so, I was very fortunate because of new thinking allowed to have at my fingertips a lot of human testimony about the afterlife, as our viewers know. Yes, you certainly do. And yes, it's uh, difficult to replicate some of these profound experiences 
And some of these experiences may be even virtually impossible in a laboratory, for sure. So in that experience with your Uncle Harry, it wasn't just a dream. You dreamt of him, had one of these most profound dreams, emotional experiences of your life, and when you contacted your family, you found out that... Well, my mother called me right away as soon as she got my letter and said, how did you know? That's when Uncle Harry died. I had that dream as best I can figure out, almost simultaneous to the uh, time of his death. Yeah, and that is just amazing. So... Are you able to feel Uncle Harry, or do you feel that you can connect with any of your other past loved ones, yourself personally? I don't purport to be a, a medium. I, I have had lots of spontaneous experiences and intimations of, of people. Uh, for example, uh, I'm about to release, I, I think maybe in a... a I'm going to say roughly the same time, I think, as this interview will be released, an old interview with James Harder, who was one of my professors at Berkeley uh, when I did my work in parapsychology. He died in 2006, and I, he's been appearing to me in my dreams lately in some very powerful ways. So, uh, I, I think I have intimations uh, of deceased people in my dreams. It's it's not a regular, ongoing thing. Uh, you know, Uncle Harry had only needed to come to me for maybe a period of uh, a minute or two to change my entire life. Well, you don't need to have very many of these experiences necessarily. Many religious and spiritual practices already do preach, teach, uh, inspire that the afterlife does exist. We do continue on. In fact, your essay shows that the evidence is that 70% of Americans pretty consistently believe that we continue on in the afterlife, yet it still remains taboo in academia. So why do you feel there's such this disconnect happening between many people who share in private to people such as yourself? As a parapsychologist, myself is working as an intuitive they share these experiences because they're afraid to be judged or deemed uh, crazy. Why do you think there's such a disconnect happening between really what's happening internally for people and yet what's happening um, in really in our culture? I think it's fair to say, and I suspect that many viewers will relate to this, that we live in a dark age. It's true, there's all sorts of scientific advancements that are taking place, but at the same time, we've suffered through in the last hundred years through some major world wars, through holocausts and large-scale famines and pandemics, and uh, in the Hindu culture, I think they refer to this as the Kali Yuga, which is a very dark time. My friend James Tunney, who's been interviewed on this channel many times, refers to it as the dark age of scientism. People believe that the material world that we experience through our senses is the only real world and that the inner world 
of the mind and of the spirit is something very ephemeral, a fantasy almost, a, a spectral reality that hardly even counts. If, if something is unimportant, we say it's immaterial. Or if we can't understand something, we say it doesn't make sense, as if it's only the external world that is of value uh, to us. And so, People grow up with this feeling that uh, the, the science of parapsychology is practically a taboo. Think of it, Emmy. I got a doctoral degree in the field more than 40 years ago. And while, yes, there are dozens of people, maybe even hundreds, fortunately, at this point, who are able to do doctoral dissertations on parapsychological topics, the, the term parapsychology itself is still regarded as a taboo word. I was recently invited to uh, present at a major scientific conference on consciousness, and I, I was told you can't use the word parapsychology. That's taboo. It is. It's a head-scratcher for me because I've been watching your program since the 80s, and uh, it all makes sense to me. Of course, I've had a lot of personal experiences and so many people do. It's almost as though uh, it seems that there's some camps who've had the experiences and therefore they believe it and those who have not and therefore they don't. Well, as a matter of fact, Emmy, one of your experiences made its way into the essay, and I included it because not only is it a dramatic experience, but you took the trouble to document it rather thoroughly. Yeah. Why don't you share with our viewers something about that experience? My mother-in-law passed November 5th of 2019, and we actually brought her to our home and she spent the night with us. We did a, a wake here at our home, actually in this room. And a few nights later when she was being cremated at the crematorium, my the next morning I found out that my stepfather had received a text and he said, I got your text last night at three in the morning. Well, if anybody knows me, I'm not one to text at three in the morning and the text said, glad it's over. And I certainly wouldn't have said that about my relationship with her name is Sally Dixon because I loved her so much and uh, helped her in her later years. She was dealing with Alzheimer's and other health issues. And when I looked at my cell phone just to see, like, did I, did I have some experience where I, I had a, I, I uh, slept, <laughs> dreamed or whatever the term is, you know, where I'm <laughs> dreaming but awake or whatever. Um, and actually sent a text and I hadn't, it wasn't on my phone. And so I, to convince him that I didn't send it, I took a screenshot and sent it to my stepfather. And then he sent a screenshot of his phone and sent it to me. And it's in your essay. And my, interestingly, my stepfather has always described himself as an atheist. And at the time, my mother, my mother actually passed, interestingly, Jeff, uh, this past, this most recent summer, 2021, when you were writing your essay and I had, you had asked for feedback and actually I provided feedback to your, about your essay the very week of my mother's celebration of life. So that was very uh, personal for me and helpful in, in my life. So when my stepfather had this experience, it occurred to me that because my mother had also had Alzheimer's, that maybe he had this experience to 
help verify that there's something that's going on because a lot of times when we are in these realms of parapsychology, psi experiences, intuition, whatever you want to call it, they're very internal. But to have something that materializes, that's physical, I think that my stepfather needed to see that in order for him to maybe believe that he could continue to have a relationship with my mother when she wasn't earthside anymore. And so, Jeff, when I shared that with you, uh, my stepfather thought that it was a message from Sally, and, and you said the same thing. It's very interesting that your mother-in-law chose your cell phone to send a message to your stepfather. So, in all of that, there's a sense of the emotional connection between people that seems to facilitate these experiences. Yes, because in absolutely, I think you're, of course, <laughs> very right. In my experience, emotion seems to drive a lot of these experiences. And even, you know, when people are wanting to have intuitive experiences or like you, when you wanted to have a dream, when you had the, the eye and the focus magazine, I know you've described that, that you were, had a strong desire for something to happen. And so because the, at that time, my mother and my mother-in-law, um, before my mother, mother-in-law passed, both had Alzheimer's that was very obviously emotional for my family for many years. And so I think that it was a way for my mother-in-law to pass a message on that we do continue. We do continue on. Have you had any further dreams or intimations of your mother-in-law since her passing? Oh, absolutely. I've dreamt of her several times. I do feel I had a very strong connection with her and, uh, I do believe that she's with us and my husband and I, she was very close to, she had three sons very close to my husband. We've had some synchronicities where we will be thinking of her or talking about her and a song will come on, like Blackbird was one of her. Um, interestingly, with your crows here in the, in the essay, that was her totem. Um, and so those kinds of experiences just continue and we're very grateful for that. Well, one of the things I do point out in the essay is that this kind of an experience where uh, a message comes through on a cell phone, a text message, or sometimes voice messages are left on answering machines. Sometimes people even have two-way conversations on the telephone with a deceased individual. Uh, other times, voices from the deceased appear on uh, radio signals and on computer screens or computer voice messages. And this is known as instrumental transcommunication. There are actually today tens of thousands of hobbyists working in this area. And one of the foremost of these hobbyists is a woman, Annabella Cardoso, who's been interviewed on New Thinking Aloud a few times. And in fact, once again, I'm going to link to uh, some of the interviews, or at least one, with Annabella as an example of instrumental transcommunication. So even though your, your experience, if taken by itself, might seem too strange and bizarre to even talk about, when it you look at the larger database that we now have of people having similar experiences, it's not so unusual at all. Yeah, and I've really contemplated, Jeff, that um, even before we spoke today, that I think people are having these experiences for sure. We know that, but I think that a lot of people 
could be having these experiences if they were paying attention more. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, sometimes they just hit you over the head. I wasn't looking for uh, an afterlife experience uh, when I had the dream of Uncle Harry, but uh, it was so powerful, it, it couldn't be ignored. Now, I've interviewed other people where the experiences are sometimes more subtle. Sometimes uh, it's symbolic or sometimes it's a synchronicity and you're never quite sure how to interpret it. But very often, like with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and having a woman materialize, a, a physical materialization right in her office at the University of Chicago, that uh, is, no matter how dense you might be, then <laughs> it hits you over the head. Yeah, I had an experience when I was a young child of seeing somebody in our storage area in the attic moving boxes, and I thought it was one of my brothers. I have I had three brothers at the time. A younger brother came later. And it was the only way up to the attic was just these one set of stairs. So I ran downstairs thinking that some one of my brothers was up there, but they were all downstairs. And ever since that experience, because it scared me so much, I've asked to not see things <laughs> in the physical world that way. <laughs> Although now I'd probably be better with it, but it was, uh, it was very, very scary at the time. Well, there are a lot of religious prohibitions against communicating with the departed. And um, the um, Old Testament, or I guess it, it's what the Christians call the Old Testament, the Jewish people just call it the Bible. But in, in any case, there's a famous story of the Witch of Endor, where Saul goes to see, a, a in effect, a medium who lives in the village of Endor, where apparently they had a circle of mediums back in ancient times. And she conjures up this spirit of the deceased prophet Samuel, who prophesizes uh, that Saul will be killed in battle, which I believe he was. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, there are strictures against this sort of thing in the Jewish religion and in the Christian religion. And uh, many other traditional religions just feel like, yes, this is all very real, but just don't go there. We, the living, are not meant to communicate with the dead. There's a, a very heavy belief like that. It's rarely spoken of openly, and it's certainly defied by the various spiritualist churches, but it's quite strong in our culture. And frankly, spiritualist churches, for all the good that they do, and, and they do a lot of charity work, for example, and especially in places like Brazil, are still regarded as being on the fringes of our culture. In my experience, of course, I feel that every, mm, every uh, individual, every unique experience deserves unique attention on what that individual might need in that moment. Um, are the spirits ready, willing, and able to communicate is another component. And uh, one of my good friends is very Catholic, and we've had many discussions around this because our friendship actually depended on it. We almost separated as friends because of some of these topics over the years, particularly when the Da Vinci Code book came out. And um, 
the what we discovered and from the Catholic tenets is essentially that yes, these things do and can happen. Of course, we know that a lot of scripture and a lot of uh, spiritual literature is created through prophets communicating with other beings, angels, or God. And so, if we that the you know if we can allow these things to just happen naturally, that that it can be supportive of us in unique ways in our lives. So, Jeff, why do you feel? This essay competition, and by the way, I also just want to personally, publicly thank Robert Bigelow for creating this. Why do you think this essay competition and all this amazing literature of knowledge that's come out from all of your colleagues is so important right now? We live in an age where for the first time in history, humanity has the means to utterly destroy ourselves as a species. We, we could do it through nuclear war. We can do it through pollution. Uh, in fact, many people think we're close to doing it. So, uh, because I think we're facing the prospect of our own destruction as a species, our own self-destruction as a species, I think the, these kinds of visionary and psychic and spiritual experiences are, are coming up to stare us right in the face, to confront us with uh, not only the terrible destruction that we're capable of causing, but the fact that we have inside of ourselves the power to change things the power to change uh, direction completely and, and to become, to take responsibility as a species for our own survival. And what do you believe happens to us in the afterlife? There are many descriptions that have been uh, written of in the spiritualist literature, in the literature of channeling. Probably uh, the one that parapsychologists pay the most attention to is a book called The Road to Immortality that was uh, written by automatic writing, the automatist, as she is known, it was Geraldine Cummins who, who did this in the 1930s. And uh, the person who supposedly dictated this book to her was Frederick Myers, a deceased psychical researcher who died in 1902, and was known for uh, many, many communications, including this book, which was dictated supposedly uh, decades after his own death. And the road to immortality is his description of the afterlife after having spent you know, several decades of our time there, because apparently time is very different when you're in the afterlife itself. But uh, his description is consistent with a great deal of esoteric literature, that there are levels that one moves into higher and higher levels of spiritual awareness, that one can become in touch with a, a group soul, something that uh, Jane Roberts, another channeler, describes very vividly in a novel she wrote called The Education of Oversoul 7. That uh, Myers said, we have group souls that we participate in, some of them as small as maybe 20 individuals, some of them may have thousands of, of individuals. And 
We haven't yet mapped out the afterlife in, in great detail using scientific techniques, but I think we're on the brink of being able to do that using techniques like uh, hypnotic regression, working with mediums. I think even remote viewers and lucid dreamers can uh, enter into what the Tibetans would call the Bardo planes and begin to report back, much in the way, let's say, 500, 600 years ago, the first explorers reached out into the what they then called the New World and began to map out continents that were completely unknown to uh, European civilization. Beautiful. And do you feel that we reincarnate or do you think it depends? There, there's great evidence for reincarnation. The, the best database that I know of is at the University of Virginia, where uh, founded by Ian Stevenson, who was uh, chairman of the psychiatry department and began looking at uh, memories of young children who almost as soon as they could speak began talking about uh, they used to belong to a different family in a different town or village and with different parents. And uh, they have in their records over 2,500 cases of this sort. And of those, maybe 1,700 are what they call solved cases. You, you will find on the New Thinking Aloud channel, and well, I don't know, I can only link to five videos, so I'll have to be careful. But there's a whole series with James Matlock, 12 interviews discussing all the details about uh, the reincarnation research. So, how do we evaluate it? I think probably to be conservative, we can say that uh, we've got pretty good evidence that 1,700 people have, in fact, reincarnated. It doesn't mean that everybody will. Uh, we have a lot to learn about that whole process. I can imagine 100 years from now, we will know so much more. How does the awareness that we continue after this life help us in this one? I know you mentioned around the ecology and just the survival of the planet, but I know you're a big fan of becoming the best version of yourself. Where is that connection with this essay, your essay and this essay competition? Religious traditions have this notion of heaven and hell. It's, it's pretty common to almost all religions in one way or another. In other words, that your fate in the afterlife is in some way contingent upon how you behave in this lifetime. And I can say this, the research on reincarnation does not support that idea in a uh, explicit way, you know, you might think of the law of karma. Does it mean if you're a bad person in your next lifetime, you're going to get punished for it? The reincarnation literature does not suggest that that's the case. But I do think that the habits of thought and behavior that you die with are going to persist with you. And if you're in the afterlife and you're the kind of person whose mind is on uh, self-satisfaction and egotistical involvement, uh, if you're more concerned about gratifying yourself than in uh, 
feeling compassion for others and you carry that with you into an afterlife experience, it may be an unpleasant afterlife experience for you. Uh, again, we have a lot to learn. The uh, literature on near-death experiences, for example, indicates that a tiny percentage of people, maybe 1%, have hellish experiences. That uh, most people in a near-death experience, when they come back to report, talk about uh, overwhelming feelings of compassion and love. But I do have the sense that some people can't accept that because they're not in the habit of uh, allowing that into their lives. Uh, it's a kind of a, a shame. Uh, many people, after having had a near-death experience, come back to their body and have a real hard time adjusting because their old habits are not consistent with the uh, experience of, of overwhelming love that they had during the near-death experience. Yes, Eben Alexander talks about, and many others, how love seems to be the primary focus of what we're all here for and what really matters. In what ways do you hope to positively impact our culture? I know for you, this isn't about just putting out information and you've mentioned many great ways that you're positively impacting culture, but I feel like there might be a few more areas you might want to share. Uh, you know, lately, Emmy, I've been feeling humbled in the sense that in the seven years that I've been doing New Thinking Aloud, it's grown to where we've reached over 12 million viewings and we have over 106,000 subscribers as I'm speaking to you now. Uh, at the same time, uh, I had an interesting conversation with Robert Bigelow uh, in which he made a point of saying, we can't change the world. The world is, is, is too big. You know, we can do our best and, and we have to be satisfied with that. And I, I, I'm, you know, honored and thrilled that I'm reaching many people, probably uh, in terms of providing solid information in parapsychology, uh, reaching a, a larger audience than most have ever done. But I, at the same time, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the problems that we face in the world. So uh, I, I feel humbled by that. Uh, I feel like, at, you know, someday the sun is going to go extinct. Uh, the planet Earth will become uninhabitable. It may not happen for 20 million or 20 billion years, but at some point it's going to happen. At some point, the entire human race will be gone. And maybe the best that we can hope for as a species is that, is that we have a good death and that we, we know how to die and move on because my sense is uh, certainly amplified in the many conversations we've had with Bernardo Castrup that, that life continues, consciousness continues, whatever form it takes may be drastically different from being embodied in, in this human experience, but we have many, many more lessons to learn. And in your essay, kind of dovetailing on that, you end with that all of this information can help us to know thyself. 
So what have you learned about yourself after all these years since you were a psychology student in Wisconsin and up until now, is there anything that comes to mind that you feel you've learned about yourself that you want to share? Well, and I'll speak now from an intuitive level. I don't think that uh, there's good scientific justification necessarily for what I'm about to say, although as far as I know, it's consistent with the poetry of Rumi. I believe deeply within myself that I've been around for billions of years, that uh, just as in this lifetime, I evolved from a single-celled organism into this 75-year-old man the viewers now see on their TV screen. Uh, and having gone, if you, you know, there's this statement, uh, uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That is, the development of the human being recapitulates the, the biological development of all species from single-celled organisms up to humans. The entire history of evolution is uh, encapsulated in each individual as we uh, start out with a fertilized egg to become who we are. I think that probably I've done that over billions of, of years and that uh, that may be just the beginning. It may have happened endlessly through infinite cycles, and that uh, it includes not only life on Earth, but life on other planets as well, and not only human life, but life as every other kind of imaginable species. So very often when we have dreams at night, we have dreams of things that are totally outside of human experience, and I think those are very likely remembrances from having lived as other kinds of organisms entirely. So, I, my sense is that human consciousness is so incredibly vast, and it's been around so for so very long that this particular human incarnation is just the tiniest expression of who we are. It makes me think of infinity. <laughs> it can just keep going on and on, hard to wrap our heads around. Well, Jeff, I know you plan to continue to be involved with New Thinking Aloud, even though, and thank you for this opportunity, you're allowing me to be a guest host, and thank you so much for this opportunity. What do you hope to be remembered for? Oh, gosh, Emmy. Uh... You know, one of my dearest friends, Dean Brown, uh, I've talked about, I've, I've done an, an in-presence monologue about my relationship with Dean Brown, was a wonderful friend and a mentor he, who died about 15 years ago. And uh, he was a very accomplished man. He found one of the founders of the Zilog Corporation, uh, uh, one of the designers of the world's first microprocessing computer chips. As, and he was a Sanskrit scholar to boot and a physicist and uh, a genius in many, many ways. Uh, he once said to me that his goal in life was, was to walk through life and, and leave with as few footprints as possible. 
and I, you know, I'm kind of inspired by that. Of course, it'd be wonderful if these videos have a long life after I'm gone, and I think they will. Uh, but I've spent much of my life shining the spotlight on other people, and it's been a, a joy and an honor for me to do that. Uh, I'm shining it on you, and I hope that you will continue to shine it on other people. And maybe that's the lesson that if 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 all of us were willing to take the spotlight when we have it and shine it on other people, I think it would be a better world. Very moving, Jeff. You definitely have shown the light on so many people, and thank you for doing that with me. But it's really about sharing and connecting, and uh, I do believe at least one of the ways that I feel you've impacted me personally, and I think a lot of people feel this way, is you've really helped expand our minds, our consciousness, our um, and have inspired us to become the best versions of ourselves. So thank you so much for that. Emmy, it's been a real thrill for me to be able to introduce you to the New Thinking Aloud audience as our first guest host. And I think you have a glorious future ahead of you, not only in terms of new thinking aloud, but in terms of your work and intuition, your work as a, an occupational therapist and as a healer. Uh, so I want to just say blessings to you and blessings to all of our viewers who have been with us for seven years. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Jeff. And for all of the viewers who've been with you back in the days of, of radio, right, at Berkeley or in, in San Francisco area. So thank you again, Jeff, for this honor. And, and for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.